Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Jim Brown, president and CEO of Direct Corporation. Pleasure to have you on today, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Roel, and the wonderful opportunity and look forward to our conversation. Wonderful. So Jim, to kick us off and to set the stage for the rest of the conversation, just talk to us about in the early parts of your career, how you got interested in biotech and then what you've done since then. I've always been drawn to science and to medicine in particular. I grew up here in Silicon Valley and my dad was in the high-tech side and was an entrepreneur, but I've always been drawn to the biology and to the medicine. And I am still a veterinarian. I'm licensed here in California. So I enjoy that a lot. And early on in my days of practice, when I was starting out as a vet, I quickly came to realize that when I was treating the animals I was treating, I really was helping the owners of the animals at the end of the day. That's really what it was about, was trying to help them. In particular, I remember an older woman who had one son who had passed away and her husband had passed away and she was in a rent control department and had one cat. And that cat was like 17 years old and everything I could do to keep that cat going because that was the last part of her family. And came to want to do more than just have an opportunity to help one person at a time. And so I had worked when I was an undergrad as a biochem biochemist for a company called SIVA, S-Y-B-A, developing diagnostics. And so I had some familiar with the industry and at that time ended up making a change going back into industry and started working, developing both veterinary drugs and human drugs. And that kind of started me on my career. Wonderful. And talk to us about, before we talk about Direct and the work that you're doing, just your own entrepreneurial journey and what the early days of Direct were like. I was at Roche for our Syntex for quite a while and then Roche acquired them. So I was with Roche for a while and then eventually had an opportunity to move over to Alza, which was a company started by one of the people who had founded Syntex as well. His name was Alejandro Zafroni. He founded a good number of companies and more than 10,000 jobs in the industry. He was an amazing human being. And I learned a lot from him. And it was really from him that I got the opportunity to start direct and learn some of the key lessons in starting a company. And he told me the three most important things when you're starting any company are the people, the people, and the people, which, you know, you've heard that with real estate. It's all about the team. He said, you can find technology and the money will be there for a good idea, but without the good people, the execution is not possible. And so he was the one that allowed us to kind of spin direct out of all. We started initially as a company focused on the delivery of drugs on a continuous chronic long-term basis. We had some success there, but I had most of my career prior to this developing new chemical entities. And that was really where we wanted to be, what is in the biotech space. So slowly over time and over the years, we've evolved direct into where we are today, which is an epigenetic new chemical entity company. And we've got a great opportunity and insight into that area. And if you could please educate us on what is epigenetic regulation? To me, it's fascinating. I've been around a long time and I've never seen anything more interesting to me. If you think about it from a personal perspective, you have the same DNA from your mother and father, right? A combination thereof in every cell in your body. But if you look in the mirror and look at all the different tissue types that make you up as a human being, you've got skin, you've got hair, bone, you know, you're looking at us through clear cells in the cornea of your eye. 
all of those same very, very different cells, they all have the same DNA. And how is that possible? Because some genes are silenced and others are not. And the control of those genes is by virtue of the epigenome. The epigenome's function is to control expression of genes that allow different tissue types to occur. Interestingly, we have learned more recently about regulation of the epigenome. The epigenome influences and is dysregulated in a number of disease states. From a human pharmaceutical perspective, we have seen some drugs be developed to kill cancer cells by disrupting the epigenome and killing cells. In the case of what we're doing at Direct right now, we're developing a regulator to keep cells alive, to control the dysregulation that happens in disease. And you get these very complex multifactorial diseases that can't be controlled simply with monoclonal antibodies against the inflammatory state or controlling apoptosis or some singular aspect of a disease that affects multiple pathways and multiple organs. And that's what we're doing here at Direct. Wonderful. And then somewhat related now to what we're going to talk about next, but could you also then educate us on the lead indication that you're pursuing? which is alcohol-associated hepatitis, and certainly isn't a lot of awareness across our sector about this disease. So tell us how you landed on this as the lead indication and the unmet need. It is a very important disease. It's the most deadly disease you probably never heard of. And it is responsible for more than 150,000 hospitalizations per year right now in the United States. And 30% of those patients will die within 90 days. And that number, 30%, hasn't changed in more than 45 years. There's no therapy that really helps. It's been shown they right now use steroids, but steroids have been shown not to really improve, not to help non-survival at 90 plus days. It needs to be distinguished. It is not the same as cirrhosis. We're all aware of if somebody drinks chronically for a very long time, you can get cirrhotic liver that can kill you down you know, over time. In this case, this is an acute inflammation part of its inflammation. It's a multifactorial circumstance. The way I think about it from a perspective that might help is we're aware of what a heart attack is. This is almost like a heart attack of the liver. The liver is under an acute inflammatory episode. That's why it's called hepatitis. And it in the past was considered more of a disease of people at my age, but now more and more people are getting it who are younger. In fact, about 20% of the people who get it in the United States are young women in the ages of 20 in their 20s and 30s. And they don't have cirrhosis, but they drink at a higher level. But this is an association of more hard alcohol being consumed and more binge drinking and also more fatty liver because there's an association with this and having a little bit of fatty liver. And there's a genetic component too. So all those things come together and create this disease that has a huge impact. We're looking at probably more than 40,000 deaths per year in the United States. The cost of it is just horrific. It's more than $50,000 per patient. And if the patients die, it's closer to 150000 So it's more than a $10 billion cost just on the base case of 150,000 patients. And the only true therapy that's available to these patients are liver transplants, but there aren't enough livers available. There are only about 9,000 liver transplants per year in the United States. About a quarter of those go to these patients. So it's a little over 2,000 transplants, which is wonderful. It helps 2,000 of those 150, of which 30% might die but the cost of a liver transplant is anywhere from 850 to a million. So that's a $2 billion impact as well. So it's a substantial cost for the healthcare system, not only in money, but in lives and families and disruption. And if you look at it affecting the younger people out there, it's a, a big challenge. And we selected this over other acute indications. We've tested this drug in a number of different models and circumstances, and it's shown that it has potential in sepsis and stroke an acute kidney injury, an acute pancreatitis, a lot of interesting diseases. 
But in all of those diseases, there's a background variability that occurs. If I have a twin brother and we both have strokes at the same time, but he gets to the hospital 12 hours before I do, he's going to do better just by supportive care. Well, that's not the case with AH, unfortunately. These patients are on a slow downhill slope that there's no turning around on. If they're going to die, eventually they die of kidney disease because their liver dies or are so damaged that it poisons the kidney. There's no turning it around. We had a patient, for example, who was in our first clinical trial. We did a trial with 19 patients and we were very happy to see that they all lived and we would have expected that it was a 28-day trial and a month, quarter of them should have died. This patient was in a San Diego site and was in his late 30s and had been at another hospital for a month and was sent home on hospice. There was nothing they could do. Steroids weren't working, just supportive care. And he was able to enroll into our study. And the study coordinator told us that when she saw him two weeks later, she cried because she couldn't believe how good he looked. He ended up not only surviving the trial, but the last time I heard about him, which was well over a year after the trial was completed, he was still alive. It's a horrible disease. And there really is nothing out there to help these patients. Why do you think that given the impact from a health economics perspective and also just the sheer volume of cases that this hasn't gotten more awareness over the years? I think it's because nothing's shown to work. There have been some large studies done by a number of multinational companies, but you know they've approached with a monoclonal antibody against a particular aspect of the inflammatory cascade or trying to block apoptosis to prevent cell death. But if you look at what's going on here, we know from the studies that are out there we know that the drug that we're working on is called Larsucosterol. Larsucosterol works by reducing these enzymes called DNA methyltransferases. They are, that influence the methylation of the epigenome and therefore gene expression. 70 major pathways are influenced, a lot's going on. And so in this disease, we know from the literature, there's a, a couple of papers out there, but one in particular showed that in AH patients, these DNMTs, these enzymes that put methyl groups on are elevated. And so you get hypermethylation in these patients. So we know that's where the dysregulation is. The downstream effects of that are things like inflammation, certainly, but also lipotoxicity and apoptosis and autophagy and all these various components of cell maintenance and function are disrupted. And so when companies have gone after a single aspect of that, they weren't able to make a difference. Got it. And was there, back, let's say 10, 15 years ago, was there any misperception in terms of who this disease was impacting that you'd like to educate folks on? Yeah, I think that's an important piece. There certainly has been historically. We've had generally, I think, less of an appetite to help out people who have alcohol-associated diseases in this country. We tend to think, oh, you caused it yourself, right? And so deal with it kind of thing. And we don't have that for type 2 diabetes. You know, we don't have that for hepatitis C, which might be caused by IV drug use or something like that. So, but for some reason, for alcohol, we don't, as a society, haven't had the same tolerance for that, which I find interesting. And this is by no means a disease of people who are out in the street and homeless. You certainly can have people in that circumstance who get it, but not very many. Most people who are out and have substance abuse issues, they have multiple other things going on and acute alcohol-associated hepatitis isn't typically one of those things. I think 85% of the people who get this disease are insured. There's a, a leading liver specialist who works at Columbia who told me his typical patient works as an investment banker. These are highly functional people that have good jobs and that are part of society. There are friends and neighbors and family members. They drink too heavily and then they go away on a, a college reunion weekend or whatever, a bachelor party. And one of the physicians told me about a 26-year-old woman who went to her bachelorette party and came back with this disease. 
So instead of planning a wedding now, she has a 30% chance she'll never leave the hospital. And, but it's something that people just aren't aware of. And a sad fact, I think true, when there's no therapy out there for a disease, people tend to, there's nothing that can be done. And so they don't focus on it as much. And so I think that's all part of it. So I think if there's a bias and then there's the, no potential to help the patient. Yeah. Is there another disease that comes to mind that has such a grave outcome and also lack of awareness? Not the lack of awareness. I think the grave outcome, I would put some of the more acute horrific cancers out there like yeah. uh, AML and things like that from a lethality standpoint. It's right up there with those. But the lack of awareness, I don't know. You know, this was an interesting one to approach from my perspective, you know, and I've been around a long time. Interesting. I couldn't think of anything either. Now, given all of these dynamics, obviously you've raised venture, you're publicly traded. How do you get capital markets to understand the potential impact in an area where there isn't a lot of awareness? It is a tougher play for sure. Because there's nothing out there, we have great awareness by the hepatologists, by the physicians who are treating these patients and the transplant centers that are out there, these tertiary liver centers, they are very aware. And there's hardly a person in the United States who is in that specialty that don't know of our data. We actually recently had our phase 2A study that 19 patients that I spoke about. It was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Awareness of the molecule is out there for the people who will be using it to treat the patients. But awareness in the investment community is not there. It is something that just takes time. It's door-to-door, meeting-to-meeting kind of thing. There's no other way around it, I think, other than just good old hard work of trying to amplify it. You don't have the patient, like with some, this probably an orphan disease based on the population, but you don't have patient groups. You don't have parents and people out there supporting this disease because no one really considers it until they have a family member or they get it themselves. And then they're trying to deal with it. And so you don't have that, you know, that infrastructure to build on either. With that background now, talk to us a little bit about where you are from a development perspective sure. and, and what you're looking forward to over the coming years. We're at actually quite a late state, which is a great place to be. We have initially completed that phase 2A study, which was done in 19 patients. They all live. That's the most impressive thing when 26% or say a quarter of them should have died in their first month. Not only did they all live, but 14 of the 19 went home after just one dose of the drug, which also speaks to the fact you're changing the epigenome, you're changing the gene expression. And we saw dramatic reductions in bilirubin. And bilirubin is the breakdown product of red blood cells, hemoglobin, and you see it build up when the liver's not functioning right. You may have known a family member, someone who had liver disease, and you'd see yellowing of the white sclera of the eyes. And it's tough. It's me as the liver's not functioning when that's up. And we saw huge reductions in those. And even on within just a few days after dosing, and then certainly over the entire time. And so we had very good data coming out of that study in a disease for which there is no therapy. And so from there, we've done all the work, all the safety studies and the like, and launched into a pivotal trial. From a manufacturing standpoint, we're already at scale. And that's because the molecule has been shown to be so non-toxic, we had to actually scale it up to full commercial scale to have enough to do the chronic tox. So the tox is all done. The molecule looks very clean. And we're now in a trial we call AFIRM, A-H-F-I-R-M. And AFIRM is a 300 patient double-blind trial where we're testing two doses of larsuposterol against a placebo dose. And the patients, because some of the physicians, about 40% of the patients, they will use steroids on. So we wanted them to have an opportunity to do whatever standard of care they wanted. So if a patient in our trial gets a placebo dose, 
they would then have in a blinded fashion going with that placebo dose would be a capsule that actually would contain pernicillone, the steroid that the physician can prescribe for them. If they got an active dose, they would have a placebo capsule. And so we would, because we don't want to confuse the side effects one sees, which are many, with steroids, with our sterol. We've now completed an enrollment of the trial, and we're excited that we've achieved our enrollment target of 300 patients. We expect to see results by the end of this year. And if the results show a statistically significant reduction in our endpoint, which is looking at survival and or transplant, then we would expect to submit the NDA for approval because there is no therapy out there today and it's such a horrible problem. That's wonderful to hear you're in such late stage of development. Are you thinking about potentially commercializing this yourself, right? Yeah, we are. We've got a great team. I've got a team that was at Pharmacyclics and Genentech before that, two really good at being able to commercialize hospital-based products. The nice thing about a hospital-based product is you don't need a huge team. You can get there for 60 reps or so. So I think we're in great shape to be able to commercialize it ourselves. We will not be commercializing outside the U.S., so we are talking to people now about potential partnerships for outside the U.S., and if we ever ended up doing a more global deal, we would still retain rights to be able to commercialize the product in the U.S. We haven't set on a price yet, but we've had a number of analysts suggest, given that you know this thing costs so much to the healthcare system, that you could have a drug that could be priced in such a way that it ends up being a two-plus billion dollar product in the U.S. still save the healthcare system if it were 100% used at eight to $10 billion so, and save lives. And so it's got, we think, great potential. And this would be the first acute indication. If it works for this, then we would explore it in acute pancreatitis and acute kidney injury and a host of other diseases as well. And Jim, you've been working on this now for 25 plus years. Is that accurate? The company has yeah. been, I've been in the company for 25 years and we've been working on this particular molecule since 2012. When we first licensed it in, it was, could only hardly make a few milligrams of it. So it was all about scaling it up, doing the talks, exploring the pharmacology, and then finding the correct indication. So that's yeah. taken some time to get to this point. Yeah. So there's not many biotechs these days that can survive for that long and requires, you know, tremendous resilience to be running a company for 25 plus years. I'm curious what advice you would provide other entrepreneurs and leaders that are listening as they navigate, you know, the inherent risk that's involved in developing a new therapeutic in biotech. I appreciate a chance to be able to talk about it. For me, I would pass on the same advice that was given to me by Dr. Zaffaroni, and that is, it's all about your team. That's the most important thing is get people together that you like, that you like to work with, that have the same work ethic as you, the same goals as you, and pursue things in the same way. Because you're going to be with these people in the most difficult of circumstances over time, for sure. Everyone will be. More likely than not, in almost every biotech, whatever technology, whatever opportunity you started with, that will change might get there if you're really lucky, but very few do. Probably 90% end up changing and going to, so it's your backup position or the backup to the backup position. And you have to have a team that's resilient and capable of thinking on their feet and moving through that process. And so I think that's the most important thing is get the right people. Once you've got the right people, then you've got to find, you know, a technology that you can believe in that you think is going to make a difference. I would say in this market going forward, You've got to have not only a patient story, but a pharmacoeconomic story. You've got to be able to save healthcare costs at the end of it all. Just making a patient's life more convenient, unfortunately, as a society, we're not really willing to pay for that any longer. And so we've got to look at a bigger aspect of it all. Find something that can reduce healthcare costs and also obviously help the patients as well. So you've got to put those two things together 
And then you just got to be very smart with the way you spend money. Uh, you can't stress that enough. We talk about, you know, turning a dollar over three times before we spend it. But, you know, you really need to be careful of every every dollar that goes out the door and, and make sure that and it makes sense. Bring in the right consultants, find people with some gray hair and some experience to help you. That's always been my point. When I first started in my career, I had the good fortune of, you know, getting to know some people who had many more years experience than I did. And their vision and their wisdom has really helped me throughout my entire career. I think that's extremely important. Listen to those who have been there before. And the world, everyone thinks the world is always different. And it is different. Information is so much quicker to get and to communicate and all that. But human nature hasn't changed and business hasn't changed. And so those basic tenets are there. You and I talked a little bit about this when we were getting ready for this, which is around the importance of culture and retention of the team. Talk to us a little bit about how long this team has been together and what you think has led to the strong retention you've had. We've been really lucky. I mean, we've got around, they in the mid 70s, 74 or so people in the company. More than half the people have been at the company at least 15 years. And I think about a third, about 20 years or more. I've known people, children who came to our first holiday party. And now that little baby is now 24 years old and out of college and has a career, you know, so I've known, you know, these old families all the way through, but it's really about getting that team and having those shared goals because then you can survive the tough times. If you've got that kind of connection, I think that's a very important piece of it all. And then I think it's also, I really believe in a flat organization. We don't have a lot of infrastructure. I've made a few mistakes in hiring, but not kept those people very long. You've got to be careful when you've got a small company, bringing in somebody from a larger company who seems like, wow, this person's been there and they've been associated with this five drugs been approved or whatever. And in reality, that is a person, that man or woman can sit behind a desk and give orders. They don't really know how to do anything. And you need people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and fix the coffee machine if it's broken to help in shipping and receiving if something needs to be sent out. Then, you know, nobody's too big for anything. Help clean up after a meeting clean the tables and do whatever. And so you want those kind of people. And I don't want somebody who's too good to do the work, whatever work needs to be done and a very open door policy so people can walk into any office anywhere in the company and have a conversation or don't have offices, just have tables. And nowadays we're working so much of our time is remote when we're in the office and we're in the office two to three days a week now as a team. It's much more collegial and just open because people are almost family style at, at some tables and the like. And I think that's important. Yeah, certainly one of the very unique stories in terms of all the hard work that's gone into getting you into a late stage clinical trial for such an unmet need that has such low awareness and the resilience you and your team has shown. Quite unique in biotech these days. I'd love to now switch gears a bit and talk about the future, particularly around innovation in biotech and what you feel is holding us back as humanity in terms of providing greater access to healthcare. Now, obviously I'm the guy who spent a lot of my life developing drugs. So I have a bias, positive aspect of drugs, but they are a huge component of what a physician can offer you. And if you think about it, you're going to go see a physician, you've got a problem. They can give you advice, eat better, exercise more, those kind of things, right? If you have something damaged, they can repair you, fix a bone, take out your appendix, whatever the case might be. But other than the advice and the mechanical fixing of things, the only other alternative they have is to use their experience and their knowledge base to apply a drug that might help you. And drugs are a huge component of medicine today, and they have been for centuries, really, certainly in our society. 
And you hear so much and there's so much pressure by our politicians on drug costs. And I think it really is unfair, especially coming out of the pandemic. I mean, quite frankly, we're dramatically saved by what we were able to have coming forward with the vaccines and the drugs. Drug costs are actually less than 10% of the healthcare costs. You wouldn't know it when you hear politicians talk. They're 10% of that. And yet the benefit they provide to us is dramatically higher than that. And in fact, if you add up the cost of medicine and the cost of the care, physicians and nursing care and the like, you're at, by certain estimates, not even half of the healthcare costs in the United States. The other half of it is the bureaucracy and the business aspects, the insurance aspects of it all, the business of applying it, which certainly is there and it has a cost, but should it be as high as it is? Should it be three or four or five times the cost of drugs? I don't think so. I think that's something as a society we need to come to grips with. Politicians are able to focus on the copay that people have and hope to get themselves elected by virtue of things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which obviously attacks drug pricing. But outside the United States, I challenge anyone, where are the drugs coming from that we use in the world for humanity? Very few drugs are being developed outside of the United States and just because we still have a market here. We still have somewhat of a free market for drugs. And if we shut that down here, then it's going to be a challenge, I think, going forward for new diseases to treat things like cancer, like alcohol-associated hepatitis, these complex diseases that need to be dealt with through years of research. And if there's not an economic incentive on the other end, then those won't be developed. And if you look for the example for the case that we talked about today for AH, alcohol-associated hepatitis, that's a north of a $12 billion cost to the healthcare system today. And huge number of people are dying. If there was a drug that the cost of society was two to three billion, but it saved tens of thousands of lives and saved five or six or seven billion dollars, isn't that a good business? Doesn't that make sense? But somehow people don't look at that. They just look at the price of the drug and say, well, that's bad. That's too much. I would love to see greater awareness of pharmacoeconomics and of it all. How do you think over the next two to three decades, we make that happen? Because I certainly agree with that. You know, we need to increase the things that you're doing now. I think we need to increase the awareness in your average person of what does it take to develop a new drug? If you want something there to save your grandfather from that cancer or your sister or your mother, you know, that medicine has to be there. And that medicine doesn't come. It comes after years. I mean, if I think about Lorsuco-Sterol, the professor who discovered it, he worked for 20 years to originally find this thing in the knot. And then we've been working on it for more than 10 years, right? And it invested millions upon millions of dollars to get to this point. And this trial hopefully will work, but it may not work. We won't know until we unblind it. That's the reality of developing any therapy is you have to have a researcher somewhere dedicating their lives to it. And then you have to have a team together of experienced people to be able to get it done. To the extent that we can use your platform and others to enhance the awareness of what it takes from a time and cost standpoint to bring new medicine forward, then people, I think, will have the appreciation for it better. And maybe we need to change the copay aspect. I think this whole thing where somebody needs to come out of pocket for $120, why do we do it that way? One could do it in an entirely different way. In my mind, I would rank it up there with surgery as a way of helping people. So how do we deal with those costs and have the appropriate amount. You don't pay for half of your surgical fees when you have surgery, you pay a very small percentage. And I think if we did the same kind of relative percentage on drugs, then it wouldn't be as a burden some to the your average person. And I think they'd be more willing to listen. Certainly agree with all that, Jim. Jim, before we let you go, 
wanted to ask you to reflect one more time. And over the course of your career, you've experienced certainly a lot of diversity and certainly shown a lot of resilience. If there was one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know, what would that be? I would say, listen to, you know what the right thing to do is and taking it forward. And I would say, so listen to your gut and take a move on that. I think about our superstar, which we're developing right now. You know, I may have been able to accelerate that by two or three years if I had pushed harder with my board at that time. So I think, you know, we all know the right thing to do when you started what you're doing now and you just know. And so I think to be able to truly follow what you think is the right path. And that's what I would give myself. Jim, that certainly resonates with me. So on that salient advice, thanks so much for joining us today, for educating us on this important unmet need and continued success to you and your colleagues. Thank you, Roe, and thank you for the opportunity. Very fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.